content warning, this episode talks about addiction and overdoses, and we briefly mentioned suicidal ideation. This is the Upper Cape Catch by The Enterprise. I'm Noelle Ananen, and today we are going to have a tough conversation. It's the kind of tough talk that's really important to have, and we are going to have it with people from each of the four towns that we cover, Sandwich, Bourne, Mashpee, and Falmouth. But before we get into all of that, I want you to hear a story and it starts in a gym. This is Wellstrong. It's a fitness center in Falmouth. And this is a yoga class, which is one of the many classes that they offer. The center is designed to help people get stronger, mentally, physically, and emotionally. Wellstrong is run for and by people recovering from substance use disorder. I wanted everyone to like me. It's run by people like Alicia Conlon. Every time I share, I talk about being a recovering people pleaser and a perfectionist. Today, Alicia is the studio and program director at Wellstrong. If I was hanging out with friends and they liked rap music, I liked rap music. If they liked sneakers, I liked sneakers. If they wore French braids, you know, I had French braids. But before she got to where she is now, years ago, she was a normal teenager. She struggled with things a lot of teenagers struggle with, like insecurity, peer pressure, and identity. The first time I picked up a drink, I was 14 years old. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I just knew that I was extremely uncomfortable in my own skin. Alicia and a friend of hers were alone that night. Her parents had gone out. They drank some vodka, hard lemonade, and eventually... I drank until I passed out. After that, when I woke up, I thought that that's what you were supposed to do when you drank. You know, I thought that that was the ultimate goal. That became like the goal for me every time because I no longer had to feel. I no longer felt like I was full of fear. I felt fearless. And I turned into a weekend warrior at the age of 14. And I didn't know that that was leading to a life of addiction and pain. At the time, I thought that I was just being young. Alicia's substance use escalated slowly, from parties and weekend drinking to drugs. And that started with Adderall. And that turned into cocaine because I discovered that cocaine hit faster and I could also drink more when I was on cocaine. For more than a decade, Alicia spiraled deeper into this kind of hole. I was just off and running. And I was constantly just trying to run away from myself, from how I felt. And staying out all night, constantly using drugs and alcohol, sleeping all day, it all became her new normal. She had a short turnover of friendships and relationships. She totaled her car. She was arrested and Section 12, which, for those of you who don't know, is an involuntary medical evaluation that follows a threat of suicide. I was just like laying there in bed thinking like, life can't be this hard. Like, does everybody feel the way that I'm feeling? Like, I was just so hopeless. I just felt like I couldn't get a grasp on life. Like, everyone got the handbook and I just didn't know how to operate, or was everyone faking just like I was faking? For Alicia, the first true step to recovery started with the support of her aunt, who also struggled with substance use. She brought Alicia to one of her AA meetings. Alicia said that the first few days of sobriety are like torture, like being empty. And with years of sobriety behind her, she said still, all she really has is today, 24 hours. That's all I have today. You know, I might, I just celebrated five years back on June 25th, but in actuality, I just have today. And it's, and what the 12-step program has taught me is that recovery is a daily reprieve. 
those of us who are in sobriety, we just had that small amount of willingness to be like, maybe, just maybe, if I stop drinking and drugging, like my life could look different and be different. And I just wanted to feel normal. Unfortunately, Alicia's early start with substances is far from uncommon on the Cape. According to a 2019 Boston Herald article, Massachusetts has ranked highest in the U.S. when it comes to the percentage of young people who are underage drinking. And the National Center for Drug Abuse reports that teenagers in Massachusetts are about 30% more likely to have used drugs in the last month than the average American teenager. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, found that unintentional injuries are the leading cause of death for Americans from the ages of 1 to 44. This includes unintentional poisoning or drug overdoses. So I've seen it a lot on Cape, um, and I've known about it on Cape. It's not just specific to the Upper Cape, but it's, it's really all over. This is Jamie Costa. She's one of our reporters for Sandwich, where she grew up. She said that when she was in high school, she knew a lot of people, friends and siblings of friends, family members who were using substances. It's tough. Like, it just destroys families and it destroys people's lives. It's really sad. Jamie recently reported that the number of overdoses in the town of Sandwich spiked by 63% between 2019 and 2021, according to the town's officials. And to clarify... If you talk to the police department, they look likely related to opioid overdoses, which could be heroin. It can also be fentanyl. Um, and if you talk to the fire department, it could be those type of overdoses, but can also include um, drinking too much alcohol. There's a pretty common conception, I guess you could call it, that if you struggle with addiction, you likely struggle with mental health, um, but it's actually backwards. She said that the Sandwich Fire Chief said that 20% of overdose calls are correlated with mental health, but with mental health calls, the addiction aspect is around 75%. So they're seeing three out of every four having some sort of secondary issue, whether with alcohol or drugs. Officials will respond differently to an overdose depending on what substance is being used. For alcohol, if officials think someone is too intoxicated to be left alone or with others, they'll hold that person at a police station until they're sober, and then they'll be released. Overdose prevention advocates have been trying to educate the public about Narcan, a drug that temporarily mitigates the symptoms of overdose. It's designed to be administered by anyone, regardless of experience or training. And Narcan, by the way, is the brand name or trademark name for the actual drug, Naloxone. Narcan is usually distributed as a nasal spray, and it's important to note here that there's actually a lot of legal forgiveness in this situation. For instance, if someone applies Narcan to a person who seems to be overdosing, but isn't actually, that person won't be sued, and the person displaying symptoms won't be harmed in any way by the Narcan. And if someone is trying to help someone who actually is overdosing, there are amnesty laws that protect them from drug-related charges when they call the police or an ambulance. Narcan only works for a certain amount of time, kind of like an EpiPen. So medical personnel know that they only have a certain amount of time to act before the overdose and reaction continues. Jamie said that, by law, paramedics have to take the person to the hospital. But there's nothing that really holds them to hospitals or to treatment. Um, they're released, and that's when actually fire departments are seeing the most overdoses is right after they're released. Like, people have overdosed on their drive homes. They've overdosed when they've gotten home. They've died when they've gotten home because they, they continue to use the drugs. And a lot of the time when Narcan is administered, um, the patient is angry because they've it's ruined, like, their high, essentially. If someone is at risk of harming themselves or someone else, 
Jamie said that family members can fill out a Section 35 at a courthouse. It's, it's involuntary arrest, essentially. They're brought into the courthouse, they're brought before a judge, they're assessed, and if the judge deems them a danger to themselves or others, um, they are placed in involuntary rehabilitation. That person will be placed in rehab for up to 90 days. Jamie said that there's this stigma that makes it hard for people to be honest about their addiction, even if they know deep down that they have a problem. There's a lot of stigma surrounding addiction in terms of how people got to where they are, why they can't just get out of it. There's like a big lack of understanding surrounding it. This is one of the small areas where the COVID-19 pandemic kind of helped things. So it's kind of encouraged people to have these conversations like, hey, I'm struggling. Hey, you know, I have a drinking problem. Hey, you know, I've been doing more drugs than usual or like coping in different ways. Um, so even though the calls are going up, it's not necessarily that there's more people struggling with mental health and addiction. It's that people are more comfortable talking about it and actually asking for help. It opened this invisible door that kept people from having conversations about mental health. And this conversation is exactly what people like Elizabeth or Beth Griffin want people to have. In my opinion, education is the number one thing that we need to do for people in our community. Knowledge is power. Beth worked as a guidance counselor at Upper Cape Tech and co-founded the Born Substance Free Coalition. Beth worked directly with kids at Upper Cape Tech for 25 years. Beth said that it's important for kids to have an education on how genetics factor into addiction. Her goal is to combat the bias toward people who struggle and educate teenagers who might be at risk. Nobody, when they're sitting in a classroom, goes, you know, I want to grow up and be an addict. You know, and that some people are more predisposed genetically to addiction. It's, it's the power of education is, is letting people know that, you know, this isn't um, something that people can just choose to do and they can just stop. It just isn't that way. She said that she would draw a genogram and ask random students in a class questions. How old is your mom? How old is your dad? Did your mom struggle with addiction? Boom. Now, did mom's mom struggle with addiction? And there's, usually you see that line, and one of the things is, is that I show kids, if your mom struggled with addiction and your dad struggled with addiction, your chances of you playing with substances, you have a high propensity to struggle with addiction. She said that someone's environment can factor into their risk as well. Grief, um, losses, um, trauma triggers, um, natural events. Or there can be mental health triggers like anxiety and depression. It would behoove us as a community and individuals to try to lend a lending hand for people to feel comfortable to reach out to people is huge and not to be judged for that. You know what I'm saying? When people start to work toward recovery, they might join groups like what Alicia did. They might work their way through programs and eventually they might sit down and talk with someone like Sandra Farrell. And everybody calls me Sandy. Sandy is a therapist who has specialized in substance use, anxiety, depression, grief counseling, and couples therapy for more than 30 years. She practiced in Mashpee for 10 of those years, and today she works with people from just about anywhere on the Cape, and a lot of them are in recovery from substance use. Yeah, we don't say recovered because we've got the disease the rest of our lives, so we say recovery. Sandy is in recovery herself, which is part of the reason why she got into this practice to begin with. 
She said she's been in recovery for 38 and a half years. When I was first using it for a while, I destroyed my life. I had nothing left and alcohol and drugs were telling me everything to do. She started recovery in AA and outpatient care. And to this day, she continues to use resources like these to stay on track. I never thought I'd get sober, not in a million years. Not everyone necessarily wants to recover, but by the time they get to Sandy, they've already been through outpatient care. By the time they get to outpatient counseling, they usually have done quite a few things in recovery. And so far, they're having a hard time holding on to that. People are here because they really want help. And those people? Sandy says that could be anyone. It's across the board. I see um, CEOs. I see housewives. I see firemen. I see uh, lawyers. I see doctors, people that own grocery stores. I see people that work the night shift at Stop and Shop. It just doesn't make any difference what the person is doing. It's what the alcohol and drugs have done to them. But the timeline and process of how someone might go from substance use to recovery to relapse and recovery again, it's not always a clear cut or straight line. It depends on the denial. It depends on the support. It depends on what environment is around the people. Sandy said support from loved ones is essential in this recovery process. If you could do it on your own, you would have stopped 10 years ago. But she said that it can be hard for the people closest to someone struggling with addiction to trust them again. And it's hard because they've already been through an awful lot of sorrow and disappointment and lying. And now the person's sober and takes a long time to build the trust again. This is our reporter, Jamie Costa, again. She's close with people who have been caught up in substance use. You understand that people are struggling and it's not their fault because addiction completely rewires your brain. You develop this insane dependency, like your body develops this dependency where you need drugs to function and you'll do just about anything to get them. So I've seen a lot of stealing happening in the family. I've seen a lot of backstabbing, a lot of stolen property, stolen belongings, anything that can go toward money. It's kind of like you just accept that they're at the mercy of their drugs and that, like, they probably won't survive it. Like, you just get to that point where, like, like, unless you see it happening and you see them recovering, you just kind of expect that, like, okay, like, they're probably not gonna survive this. Like, you can't force someone to change and you can't force someone to be better. And I think that's the hardest thing for families is, like, you so desperately want to help them, but you can't help them if they don't want to help themselves. Sandy said that there are support programs for family members, like Al-Anon, which is a family program for people whose loved ones are struggling with addiction, and there's a separate version for teenagers. Sandy recommended for close friends and family to try to disassociate the disease of addiction from the person who is addicted, and to look at the person and the disease as two separate things. And when you're looking at them and trying to trust them, it can give you some hope. Sandy said it is in a brief process, that recovery doesn't just happen in a few months. Most of her clients are with her for years. But it's not just people like her who are trying to help. There are also step-by-step programs along the way. My favorite is uh, outpatient counseling when you get to that level. But there's like first level is detox and then maybe a 21-day program, 28-day program. And then if you need more, they have programs for a couple months. Then if you need more, they have year or two-year programs. There's AA. NA, or Alcoholics and Narcotics Anonymous, which enable peers to get together for support through recovery. 
She said sometimes for people who don't prefer groups, and even for people who do, having a sponsor is important. That's someone to call pretty much any time that they need. And they might just talk with them. They don't judge them or anything. And they might say, well, I'll come over, let's go to a meeting. Uh, they might talk to them about their environment. They might go over their house and just chat with them. There's also SMART, which stands for Self-Management and Recovery Training. And then there's always places like WellStrong, where people like Alicia can find community with people walking the same road of recovery as them, every 24 hours, day by day. I say it all the time. I have the best job in the world, but the most complicated job in the world. Um, people in recovery are definitely a unique population. They um, require a lot of attention and love and um, support. And I wouldn't trade my job for anything. I absolutely love it. I get to be in the middle of it. I get to see people come in like absolutely hopeless to like having several months under, you know, of recovery and then, you know, slowly getting their life back. I've seen members come in for the first time who didn't have a voice who are now leading, you know, refuge recovery meetings and like teaching breath work. I guess you work here? I work here too, yes. I'm the, uh, one of the peer wellness coaches. Okay. Sandy said that she was showing someone around her practice in Mashpee one day, and she'll never forget what he said when she told him that she was a therapist. And he said, so that's too bad. And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean that's too bad? Oh, you got to listen to them day in and day out. That must be so hard. You must get depressed. And I said, oh, no, that's not what I do. I watched them sit and get better week by week. You couldn't have a better job than that. I know. <laughs> I know. Have you all practiced Kundalini Yoga? I have not. Today's program was written, hosted, and produced by me, Noelle Annanen. I want to thank Sandra Farrell, Beth Griffin, Jamie Costa, and Alicia Conlin for their invaluable help on this episode. The Upper Cape Catch comes out every Friday, just like our newspaper. Check us out online at capenews.net or find us at your favorite local business. We also have an app that is free to download on the App Store and Google Play. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Upper Cape Catch.